Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. I have a few things to talk about. A scandal, and then the, the normal news and Q&A stuff. So let's just jump right into it. First up, My Life in Gaming uploaded their video of the NT Mini review, and as you could imagine, it's absolutely awesome. Um, their comparisons between the Mini and other options are absolutely spot on, and uh, I'm glad I didn't try to do any of that because it would have paled in comparisons to theirs anyway. So uh, definitely recommend watching it if you're even considering getting an NT, because between my basic overview review and overview review, I can't be proper English. Anyway, between my overview and their uh, very in-depth comparison between everything, it should really answer every question you could possibly have about it. And it just kind of further cements the point that as a NES, it's very cool, uh, you know, like a rich guy's toy. But as all of the consoles that it's currently emulating, it's now kind of an affordable solution if you didn't already own those consoles and put mods in them anyway. So definitely check it out. Speaking of the NT Mini, Last Friday's core update was for the Atari 2600. So as he mentioned, Kevtris is going to be releasing a new core each week for the analog NT Mini that adds functionality of another console. Full FPGA cores, all uh, hardware simulation, if you will, not software emulation at all. Um, and this week's was the Atari 2600, and it's great. And I love that the NT Mini does analog as well, because it's my personal opinion that the 2600 looks terrible on a flat screen. But it, I think it looks great on a, a RGB monitor or a CRT. So while I'll be playing my NES games both on my flat screen and my monitor, um, Atari 2600 for me is definitely monitor only. Um, also, Kevtris announced that he's going to start the process of designing a bunch of cartridge adapters for it. So you'll be able to plug in um, this adapter that, into the NT Mini that allows you to use original cartridges. And it's SMS, Intellivision, ColecoVision, Atari 26 and 7800, Odyssey 2, Supervision, Game Boy, and Game Gear. So me personally, the ones I'm by far the most interested in are SMS because uh, Kevtris said he'd look into incorporating the 3D glasses adapter, which I think is pretty awesome. And then Game Boy and Game Gear, so I could do what I've always wanted to do and start a game on a, you know, a cool portable system. I have all of mine modded with better backlights and better screens. And then when I get home, plug that right into my big screen and start playing it right on a larger screen at home. So I'm glad I finally have the opportunity to do that with some of these older games on good hardware without any lag or anything. So I'll keep everybody updated, and I'll, I'll try not to make the uh, NT update so long from now on. I'll just kind of stick to the point which core is available and when stuff is for sale, because I could probably spend a few minutes each week talking about all the new features Kevtris is, is adding or, or trying to at least tweak on them. Next, Professor Abrasive just started a Patreon. 
He's the developer behind that device that plugs into the back of a Saturn, and you're, you could boot games directly off of it rather than have any mod chip whatsoever. You just plug it right in the back. Um, so I think it's kind of neat that he's going about it as a Patreon instead of like a Kickstarter or something. I'm not sure how that'll work out in the long run. Um, maybe it'll be better because now we'll be supporting him on this project as well as other future projects. And it doesn't put a hard timestamp on anything, which is always just so hard to meet. But um, I guess post your opinions in the comments and let me know what you think of it. But um, I'm definitely going to be uh, following him, and I really hope to get one of those Saturn adapters you know, soon, relatively soon, of course, because it's only one guy working on the project. But I think modless solutions like that are amazing, and I wish they were available for all the consoles. There's now another NES palette that you could load onto your NES RGB. RGB Source has released his as uh, the files that are able to f be flashed right onto the NES RGB kit, the real RGB output kit for it. And he has uh, two called NESCap and Hybrid which I guess hybrid is um, uh, kind of a mix between his capture of what he, uh, his interpretation of the palette and uh, another one, I guess, uh, an emulator one. And I tried it out on the NT Mini because you're allowed to select, uh, you could just dump palette files and there's no flashing. And he did a great job. It looks great. Um, my personal favorite is still, it's called Original Hardware from Firebrand X. And even though uh, Wolf suggests that you use a different palette on a flat screen than you do on a tube TV, that's my favorite on both. So maybe my plasma is processing colors different or something, but um, I guess that's the great thing about this is you have choices. So there really is no right or wrong. You just load up whichever one your eyes prefer and use that. So um, it's there's been other choices for a while out there, but now I think as far as I know, this is the only other one that you're able to actually flash to the NES RGB board as opposed to just using an emulator or now the NT Mini. So, uh, yeah, I mean, more choices are always a good thing. The team behind the remake of Wonder Boy A Dragon's Trap just released a video of, in my opinion, an amazing feature. You could press one button and in the middle of gameplay switch back and forth between 8-bit modes and the new high-def modes. And I don't think that this is the first time anybody's ever done this, but I, I just, I love this stuff. Um, you know, I, I imagine it's probably a lot of work for them, but I'm really glad they added it, both for nostalgia and just just for fun. I mean, it just, stuff like this is unique and cool, and I'm now I'm even more looking forward to playing it than I already was before they announced this. So, excellent job, and uh, I'm really looking forward to playing this on the Switch. The company Super Impulse just announced that they'll be selling miniature arcades later this year. The games available will be Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, Space Invaders, and Galaxian. And while this is obviously just a silly little toy and a trinket, um, it, it's kind of cool. I mean, I kind of have to buy one, as long as they're reasonably priced. They haven't announced pricing yet, so if they're 50 bucks each, no thank you, but... Um, it's just really cool to have just a miniature arcade that's, you know, just about handheld-sized. I just, I love weird stuff like this. I'm not much of a collector, but I do have a, a whole box full of cool things like this that uh, maybe they just take up space, but I'm certainly glad I own them. The F-18A video board is now back in stock, and this is a board that's a chip replacement for consoles like the ColecoVision, um, the TI-99 home computer, or the Sega SG-1000, uh, as well as a ton of others. And basically, you desolder the VDP of the original console, and you solder this one in its place, and it'll output our VGA in 480p. 
So I'm not really sure if it can do 240p RGB. I hope it's upgradable in order to do that, but it seems like a really cool drop-in replacement, and um, I'd love to see more of these for some of the older consoles as well. And uh, I really hope to get one into test. I just uh, I'm not really sure of how much extensive testing I could do and if I'd have time to do it. But um, if anybody owns one, definitely post in the comments because I'd love to know how it works. And uh, thanks to Mark Pitos for the tip. Retro HQ has just posted another video update for their Neo Geo Pocket ROM cart. Basically, you're able to split the ROMs between just the SD card and flash memory. At least, I think that's what it looks like. So that way you could go through and navigate the folders the normal way you would through any ROM cart. And then you could also load, I think, up to four of them in RAM. So that way, when you turn on the, the console, you could select between one of those and it'll load instantly rather than have to actually load it up. Which is, you know, it's kind of a cool feature. I don't think something like that would be necessary. I certainly don't mind waiting, you know, the sh relatively short amount of load times for ROM carts. Because once they're loaded, there's no others. But, hey, if you can do it, awesome. One more feature that we get to enjoy. And also, uh, I'll leave a link in the description, but you could be put on a mailing list. So it's kind of like a pre-order interest check to see how many people will want to order one. I don't know what's up with you Brits in your mailing lists. I thought those went away in the 90s, but <laughs> hey, as long as I get to be on a list and, and get the opportunity to buy one as soon as it's released, uh, I already signed up for it. So um, any other updates I'll post, and I'm really looking forward to this. It's looking like a really cool polished ROM cart. A Twitch streamer named The Mexican Runner has just beaten all 714 NES games. So that includes all 679 titles released in North America in the 35 PAL exclusives. It took him 3,435 hours to do it, uh, and he completed each one of them. So I guess he was per, uh, previously a speedrunner, and I think uh, one of his biggest ones was Super Castlevania IV. But a few years ago, he decided just to beat every NES game ever. And he, supposedly he's the first person to ever do that, and certainly do it on Twitch. But that's pretty freaking amazing. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm not going to go back and watch all 3,000 hours, but I certainly went and watched the uh, the end of uh, when he beat Super Mario 3, which is the game he ended on. He saved that one for last, and it was really neat. Um, I just, you know, things like this, in my opinion, are very cool. You know, and uh, nowadays, things like this are starting to get really recognized. So you have your sport stats from all those years past, and now video game stats are starting to become very important as well. So I hope he gets a lot of press from this, because that's, that's such a cool accomplishment. Cave Story for Genesis just had a bug fix update, so if you're in the middle of playing that game, I would definitely swap out the old ROM for this one. Here's kind of a fun one. Someone on the Sega 16 forums has created an operating system that turns a Sega Genesis into a mini computer. So at the moment, it's only able to run a calculator app, but you could plug in a mouse and use it the same way uh, it almost looks in the pictures, like an old Mac or a Windows 3.1 kind of look to it. But I just think stuff like this is really neat. I love that people are finding new and creative ways to use old stuff. And uh, thanks to Smoke Monster for the tip. Engadget has posted a few articles about the Nintendo Switch and their experiences with it in the past week. And it's pretty much exactly what I would expect. But uh, I figured I would just mention it for anybody that wanted a preview. Uh, all the links are in the description, of course. But I guess anybody that pre-ordered will find out this weekend, right? 
So hopefully I'll actually get mine on time and Target won't screw it up like they did the Nest Classic order. But I'm interested to see and I just, I hope there's something available for download on launch day because I didn't buy any games with it because I really just wanted that Zelda collector's thing which sold out immediately. So hopefully I'll be able to at least play anything. I guess they said Shovel Knight will be available, so maybe I'll uh, I'll buy that again. I don't mind buying it a second time because I really loved that game. But um, I guess there's different campaigns now, like I mentioned a few weeks ago. So maybe I'll just buy one of the newer campaigns and give that a shot. I think I'd be more than happy just seeing what that was like, uh, just to at least experience the controllers and the console itself. Next up, somebody's releasing a game about a movie about a game. No, it's not Street Fighter the movie The Game. It's a game called Get 'em Gary for the NES, and it's based off the movie Wreck-It Ralph, which is about a video game character that never existed. So I guess the game kind of reminds me a little bit of Rampage, but uh, it looks pretty neat, and I love the concept. I love how they're kind of, you know, going back and doing something like this, but they're selling the NES cartridge for 30 um, The complete in box version for 40 and then a special edition for 150 and they also have it on steam and for direct download on windows for five dollars but those are the windows versions those aren't like a nes rom so it's kind of disappointing i would love to send them five bucks and get the nes rom i guess i understand they think it's going to end up somewhere probably but uh i, I still just think it's a really cool concept and i'm probably going to end up getting the cartridge anyway just for the heck of it Another tip for my buddy Chris, there's a Genesis game that was just released called Mega Cheryl Perils, I think that's how you say it, but you basically play as a naked little girl running around. Uh, I played it for a few minutes and I was amazingly creeped out by the whole thing. Like, I, I got halfway through the first level and I was expecting a knock from Chris Hansen, like, Lou, would you like some brownies? I see you're playing as a little naked girl. Um... Uh, yeah, it's weird, man. I don't I don't get it. But uh, I figured it was worth at least mentioning just because kind of like that strange factor. You have to check it out. Uh, maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. Maybe I'm being obtuse and prude or something. But I just I don't want to look at a, a little naked girl bounce around on the screen. Or a little naked dude for that matter. Anything little and naked. Keep it the fuck away from me. So here's kind of a weird Kickstarter story. I guess a few years ago there was a game called Super Retro Squad that was fully funded at about $50,000. And um, I guess it's like a mishmash of 8-bit games, and it looked kind of cool, but it never got made. I guess the the, fund, or the person behind it canceled the project uh, it, for all the same reasons that all those other Kickstarter projects got canceled and failed. You know, he didn't realize how much work it was actually going to be, you know, he blamed his team, whatever. It's just like... 90s arcade racer and all the other ones that ended up, you know, people threw their money away. But that, it's not worth talking about. That's just, whatever. It's another failed Kickstarter. A lot of people lost their money. But um, now, supposedly, that game has been resurrected as Glitch Strikers. So very similar to what the original was going to be like, but slightly different. Um, and I, I tried researching it, and none of what I found made sense. So I guess... The money's all spent, so he can't refund anybody else's money anymore. But people who did back the Kickstarter will still get this game all these years later. 
So I'm not really sure how I feel about it, and I'm also not sure what to believe about all this stuff because, you know, there's, of course, hate posts on some website and all that stuff, but um, if you backed the game or if uh, if you know anything about it, including if you know that it's just a waste of time and not worth talking about, post in the comments because that was just kind of a strange one. Like, I guess tucking tail and running away because you failed at the Kickstarter is one thing. At least it's something I can understand. You're in over your head. You didn't realize it. But I just coming back like this is this just a weird way of trying to come come through with what you promised or is it something else i don't know just seemed like such a strange story and i figured i would uh, tell it to everybody in case there was more to it a group of people just started the video game history foundation which is basically a group that's just uh, dedicated to preserving both the software and the history of video games um, and actually, one of the I think the person heading it up is Frank Cifaldi, and I actually just watched a video that Dan Mons posted last week where Frank did an hour-long talk about how emulation and saving ROMs is might actually be the only way to preserve a lot of these things, um, and it's something that I think is really important. I mean, um, in the talk that Frank gave in the the hour-long one, he he quoted something about how you know thousands of movies from the 20s and 30s have been lost forever. Um, and some of those might have been, you know, great, important pieces of work. You know, maybe some of them weren't, but they're gone forever. And in this day and age, there's no reason for that, especially when stuff like software could just be broken down to ones and zeros and saved on a hard drive. You know, as long as we still have hard drives, these things should last forever. So it's really cool that he's doing this. Um, and I I'd highly recommend taking a look at that video. Um, Dan posted it last week, but I'll repost it in the description now. Uh, and I hope that we were able to do this for hardware as well. I mean, it's kind of my passion to to make sure that we both get original, you know, original consoles and these RGB monitors, especially too, in perfect condition, as well as take some of the things and um, show show them modded to their the best of their ability. So, like a, a very cool thing, in my opinion, uh, would be to have like a, a consumer grade TV with the Genesis plugged in in composite, and then the consumer-grade TV with the Genesis in, uh, you know, RGB-modded consumer-grade TV with the Genesis plugged in in RGB, and then maybe next to it have, like, a Sony BVM that's calibrated and a Genesis with an RGB bypass going into it. So you could really see the context of, you know, how we used it, you know, how it could have been, and the best it could possibly be. So maybe one day I'll get to work on a project like that as well. But, uh, you know, if you believe in this stuff, definitely support their foundation. And at the very least, I would give the, if you have the time, I would watch that video because I thought it was a pretty cool talk. Okay, now on to the scandal I mentioned at the beginning. Um, I was being funny about using scandal, but really this kind of, the whole situation really pissed me off and I felt like I should be sharing it with everybody. Um, so last Thursday, uh, Kotaku posted an article, and the title of the article was Fan Alters Code to Newly Discovered SNES Game Refuses to Share Original. So I read through, um, and it seemed a little fishy, but, you know, I figured I'd at least read through and see. And the way the article was written, it kind of makes it seem as if um, a person was holding the original game ransom. You know, they found this unreleased prototype, and uh, they modified it and gave that, and then was holding the other one ransom, and uh, not, you know, not giving an explanation why. 
And uh, even uh, the person who wrote the article, Heather Alexandra, quoted Frank Cifaldi in it. And she actually wrote an article talking about what I was just talking about, the video game preservation thing. So obviously, you know, she's probably got a, an open line of communication with Frank Cifaldi, and it really seemed like she just wanted to get a quote from him. And the quote that she used, um, which, I mean, I can only speculate, but it's probably taken out of context. You know, she quoted him as saying, it's a terrible practice if people aren't acting as watchdogs and documenting when things have changed. People are literally rewriting history. Which is is actually true, but something about this just didn't really sit right with me. Uh, and what really did it is when I got to the end of the article, and I noticed that there's no link to the Assembler Games forum that was mentioned in the article. So, quick googling, I found it. Um, a few days uh, earlier, The Real Phoenix had posted, um, and he posted a link to the Wikipedia about Quick the Thunder Rabbit, the name of the game. Um, and he explained that he released the game, uh, you know, it's an incomplete, unreleased game, no sound, uh, and he changed the ROM by adding a splash screen, a correct header, and a correct checksum without overwriting anything in the ROM file. Uh, and as soon as you start reading through this, the reason that he did this became amazingly evident to me. Um, he got this ROM, and... Now, you know, who owns intellectual property? You know, what are the legal repercussions going to be? Most likely, this thing would have been lost forever if it wasn't for him dumping it. Or, you know, they were going to do something else with it, and now there's a bunch of free publicity. Cool. But you never know. Maybe the company who owns it would have been pissed. Maybe there's going to be legal stuff. So he altered the ROM so that you couldn't really trace where it came from. But he didn't change the game or anything like that. And he sure as hell isn't, like, holding it ransom. It's not like he's waiting to do something with it, you know, until he gets something. It was a complete, genuine effort to release this game to people. Um, And then just that awful clickbait article. I mean, it's just... I can't believe that it was worded that way. So then it's it's actually funny because uh, Frank Cifaldi actually posted in this, and he basically said that, you know, he, he said Heather's a good journalist, so obviously there's definitely a connection, you know, an open line of communication because that was not good journalism. But um, he said he felt like he was misrepresented in the article. Uh, so he he's posting here, and, you know, he basically... I mean, he says exactly what you'd expect him to say. You know, you'd want to hold on to the original game, but he understands, and, you know, it's a generous act. He called it a generous act of preservation. Um, okay, now now it sounds more like it. And then Heather Alexandria, the person who wrote the article, posted right after that, after seeing concerns, I've made some changes, I take these concerns very seriously, blah, 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 blah. She still kept the clickbait title that implies that this person is, like, holding on to this game and keeping it from people. And she didn't really change um, Frank Cifaldi's out-of-context comments that she took. So, uh, I mean, the whole situation is just really, really annoying because, you know, Kotaku was part of um, Gawker, which is known for just being scumbag journalists that try to pick on people. And it just, you know, to see it done to somebody who's just posting on a forum. It's just really annoying to me, and it lit me up to the point where I really just wanted to talk about it. Um, And especially when you read through and you see the efforts that have been made, um, you know, I just, there's nothing you could do about it, right? They're allowed to post whatever they want, just like I'm allowed to come on here and rant on it. I just, I hope that more people 
take the opposite side of that argument and, and not hers. Because I just, it's annoying to me that somebody with the power of posting on Kotaku would just do something like that. And it's my personal opinion that if I were the real Phoenix, I would have done the exact same thing. And then I would have also taken that original ROM and emailed it to a large group of people that I could trust, that I know will never release it until either I'm dead or until we find out for sure that the intellectual property owner isn't going to come sue us for releasing it. But I would also, you know, I would I would edit it just like he did, and I would also kind of make sure, maybe I would have even sent it to Frank Cifaldi and just, I don't know him at all, but maybe I would just hope that he wouldn't, he wouldn't release it and keep it as part of his archives. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that whole thing was just annoying, and I, I wish there was a way to, like, thumbs down the article, and, you know, I'm not going to post a comment because it's useless, but... At the time of reading this, uh, or recording this, it's been read 58,000 times or something. So it's it sucks. This Heather Alexandria person's just, uh, you know, really making uh, the real Phoenix look bad, and he doesn't deserve that at all. So, I mean, I've never really interacted with him before other than, you know, when I saw this, I, I reached out to him to ask how he felt about it, and I just, uh, it sucks. So, if anybody has any suggestions or wants to vent about this as well, feel free to post down below. Or post right in her article and tell her she's an asshole. Now on to the Q&As. First, I just wanted to thank everybody for pushing me to do the timestamps. The last time I tried that was years ago for a band thing, where I wanted to put up one of my concerts and then just have timestamps on where the song started. And it was a royal pain in the ass. I didn't realize that YouTube had changed it, so it's very easy nowadays. So I'm really glad that you guys uh, pushed me to do that, and it, I think it, it's really awesome to have a digital table of contents now. And I'll do that from now on. So from last week's podcast and every video I do from now on that requires a timestamp, I will put them in there. I don't know if I'm going to have time to go back and do any of the others. I'm just drowning in extra work, but maybe someday. But for now, at the very least, any video going forward is going to have them. So thanks again. Next, Carlos Ubilia asked why there's so much attention to the NT Mini FPGA when the Mist FPGA board has been around for a while. Um, I think the main reason is because the NT Mini released with a bunch of cores that were 99% finished. Um, it just... I mean, it works amazingly. It's a product that's ready to buy and use. And, and of course, Analog, you know, they spend some money on their marketing. They have to. Um, whereas the Mist, um, the cores that I've seen videos of were very buggy. Now, I'm not shitting on the people that are working on the Mist stuff. By no means am I talking badly about them. It's just that it's um, the Mist cores are all being released as works in progress. And I'm sure they'll eventually be great. And uh, maybe at the end... And maybe years from now, the you know the Mist platform will be just as popular because it has more people working on it. Who knows? But um, all I know is right now, if you buy a Mist, there are a few cores that work great, but not all. Whereas if you buy an NT Mini, all the cores available for it work really well. Um, also, Mega chimed in and said uh, pretty much agreed with my thoughts on it and, and said it's as good as the core it's using. Um, sound was off on the PC Engine core, but the video and gameplay felt accurate. Um, and then he said a few others felt okay to him, especially the older ones like the Apple II and the ZX Spectrum. So I guess that was just a long, you know, a long answer to the question of you know the NT Mini has better marketing and all the cores are almost finished immediately out of the box. But uh, I think both are exciting because I think the only way 
we're going to be able to preserve hardware forever is through FPGA. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk in this episode about software preservation, um, but other than locking it away in a room and, and hoping they last forever, um, if you have it, if you have the hardware reverse engineered and programmed to FPGA stuff like this, it could technically last as long as we have hard drives that could save the information on it. So uh, they're both awesome projects, and I hope they both don't end anytime soon. Next, Lurch asked, what happened with my PlayStation PSIO cart, and did I ever do a review of it? Uh, I got it, I loaded the latest firmware at that time, and I loaded a bunch of games, and most didn't work. Um, but there's new firmwares, even as of, uh, as of a few weeks ago, I think. Um, and maybe it's possible that my uh, CD dumps weren't correct. But to be honest, the project kind of got tabled for a little while between everything else that was going on. So um, I will get to it eventually, and I just I hope to get to it soon. But um, I just I didn't want to say anything other than I received it uh, without really giving it a fair chance. And also, um, they're still not available for sale. So it's, uh, you know, at the very least, I'll get the review out before the next time they're available for pre-order. <laughs> so sorry for the delay, but yeah, I do have one, and uh, it's, the review's coming. Next, Patrick Trainer asked, Since the OSSC outputs video via DVI, has anyone tried to use a DVI to VGA adapter for 480p output? Um, well, yeah, that works, but just to be clear, you need to think of that DVI port as an HDMI port. So it's not, there are no analog signals, there's no DVI-A through that. Um, it is just a digital port, uh, and DVI is chosen for uh, a million other reasons. But actually using an HDMI to VGA adapter, yeah, it should work perfectly in 480p. And those are cheap too. I think I just got one for like $25 on Amazon. So if you were really looking just for a line doubler to use with the VGA monitor, yeah, I mean, it would totally work. Just make sure, don't get a dongle for like 2 or $3. Get a converter, and you'll most likely, I think that you'll, you'll be better off buying an HDMI to VGA converter, um, both because it's probably cheaper, and also if you have the audio mod, it'll route everything right through it. So, good question. Next, SNB Films asked, what kind of setup would utilize an internal digital mod for the Dreamcast versus just using the Acura? So, I haven't... Uh, I haven't reviewed the Acura yet, but um, just based on the description, it seems like the Acura is just a, uh, a Dreamcast VGA box with an HDMI converter built in, and it doesn't change anything really about it. And uh, that is by no means an insult. That in itself is going to solve the problem for a lot of people. You know, just having a way to get that signal into an HDMI input, um, it's probably going to be perfect for, for many scenarios. But when you go to digital-to-digital -digital mods, you're able to manipulate that signal in many different ways, kind of like the Ultra HDMI or the High Def NES. Um, and also, uh, the Dreamcast has kind of an odd aspect ratio. Um, there's a couple of great topics on the Schmups forum that I'll, I'll see if I could link to that describe it perfectly. But when you're going VGA to HDMI, you still kind of have to deal with that. Whereas when you're using digital-to-digital, there should be some kind of way to adjust the, um, you know, the the way you stretch it on a flat screen and how the image is processed, um, just like the high def NES and the Ultra HDMI. Um, so, what kind of setup would utilize it? Um, any any person who wants to game on a flat screen that uh, that needs those extra features, that's willing to spend the extra money. 
because you know with the Acura, it's available now. Um, you know, should be shipping by next month, and it's eighty bucks, and you plug it in, and you're done, and that's that's it. Whereas the digital one, it's still a few months away, and then you're definitely going to have to either hire an installer or take the time to do it yourself. Um, and I believe it's FPGA based, so it it can't be cheap. So it would be my guess, um, even though pricing has not been announced, this is just a guess, uh, it would be my guess that the digital is going to be at least double the cost of the Acura. Next, Untouchable Sin said that he's unhappy with how his PS2 looks on an HDTV just through the component outputs and wants to know if he should get an upscaler to HDMI or just get a CRT. Um, it's kind of a tricky way to answer because it's really just about preference. My suggestion to you would be, uh, what are your other consoles that you're going to be using? So if the PS2 is your oldest console, um, and you're really only going to be using HDMI consoles and flat screens, I would just try to get a good convert or HDMI converter. Um, you know, maybe try the OSSC if you can get one. Um, if not, you know, Framemeister I think does a pretty good job on 480i. Uh, but if you have a lot of retro consoles, and once again, this is just my opinion, um, if you have a lot of the older consoles that are, you know, 480i, 240p and below, you might actually just benefit by getting a CRT. Um, get one RGB modded, get a, a PVM or a BVM, and uh, it's my personal opinion that I prefer, in many cases, the look of those 480i games on a CRT over a flat screen. So th those are just my opinions, and I hope that points you in the right direction, but... I guess uh, I guess there's really, you know, not that much, uh, not that much solid info I can give. The only other thing is if you meant that you didn't like the component processor on the PS2, which a lot of people complain about, um, you could try um, you could try using Sync on Green and then going through an upscaler that way. But um, either way, I mean, you would have to spend good money on an upscaler for it to make a difference. You'd have to OSSC or FrameMeister, in my opinion. So I hope that was a help. Well, that's it for this week. I actually had a couple of interviews scheduled, but time zones and real life and everything always seem to get in the way. So hopefully they won't fall through again for next week. But uh, yeah, and as always, any comments or criticism, looking forward to reading it down below. And I'll see you guys soon.